1: Hey,
2: we've got a sponsor you're going to want to check out. There's a fun and challenging murder mystery game called June's Journey. This search for hidden objects will awaken your inner sleuth and project you into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. A vast new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now back to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives, as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. You're not always the most popular person in the room. Shut up and do what the president has you to do. In it. Cuba, of all places. He blew up at me several times. You take a cartel leader out and there's another one to replace them. Ukraine has not yet perish. Uh, Should we be concerned about an accident?
3: Is he going to use nuclear weapons?
2: I doubt it. The notion of a face-saving scenario for Putin is very hard to envision at this point. Mother Russia wants
3: her property back. I view Putin's actions as terrorism. This war is explained by one factor. That's it. It's Putin.
2: I love it when we've got just the right guest at just the right moment in time. And that's true for this episode of The Bureau. General Barry McCaffrey served in the United States Army for 32 years. When he retired in 1996, he was the most decorated general serving in the United States Army, having been awarded three Purple Heart Medals for wounds received in combat, two Distinguished Service Crosses, the nation's second highest award for valor, and two Silver Stars for valor. He served overseas for more than 12 years and four combat tours with the 82nd Airborne Division, the Vietnamese Airborne Division, and the 1st Cavalry Division, as well as the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division. For five years after leaving the military, General McCaffrey served as the director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. And upon leaving government service, he served as the Bradley Distinguished Professor of International Security Studies and an adjunct professor at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Now, we all know him for his military analysis on NBC and MSNBC, and particularly regarding the battle for Ukraine. He's our guest today. Barry, thanks for joining us.
3: Very good to be with you, Frank.
2: Yeah, uh we're thrilled to have you. So, you know, I've learned and, and we've talked about how over um the life of this podcast I've understood our listeners to really appreciate the stories of of our guest's personal journey, what got them to where they are and lessons learned along the way. So, let's let's talk about a young Barry McCaffrey who makes his way to the United States Military Academy at West Point. How does that even happened for you, and, and what was that experience like?
3: Yeah, well, look, I was an Army brat. Um, my dad was West Point, class of 39, a poor boy who couldn't get to college any other way, got an appointment to West Point, spent a uh, better part of nine years in combat and three wars, wonderful, very devout Irish Catholic Boston, superb athlete. And so, uh, you know, I, I was living in Paris at the time, had early admission to Johns Hopkins, and, uh, you know, at the last minute, I said to myself, I want to go to West Point. So I had a, a wonderful year at Phillips Andover, an incredibly positive experience for me, and then was fortunate to get an appointment to West Point and And uh, at age 17, and was uh, spent four years there and then out into the Army. In 1964, I graduated, right, just before the Vietnam thing went critical on us.
2: Indeed, indeed, it did. And just give us a uh, a snapshot of your service in, during the Vietnam era?
3: Well, I had uh, three combat tours. Uh, the first of the 82nd Airborne was actually an intervention in the Dominican Republic, you know, a Cuban inspired rebellion. Uh, we got deployed down there. And then I had two follow on uh, tours in Vietnam. One of them was extremely unusual. I was a um, an advisor as a lieutenant and a captain of the Vietnamese Airborne Division. So I was in a Parachute infantry battalion as a, really not an advisor. I mean, what did I know? The battalion commander had been in combat for 15 years. So we were really there to provide U.S. fire support, U.S. uh, logistics support, very intense combat, huge casualties. The Army sent me to a year of training before I went there. Incredible. Spoke Vietnamese, probably as well as I did Spanish. Mm. And then the, the, the final tour was a tour as a rifle company commander in the 1st Cavalry Division in 68, 69, where again, I got wounded. Uh, had most of my left arm shot off by a machine gun at close range. Tremendous, you know, high-intensity combat, bunch of 19-year-old draftee boys who, we, who I loved. The first sergeant and I the only two people in the company over the age of 25. He was a Korean War veteran age 35 who'd been badly wounded in that same company in the Korean War B company second of the 7th cavalry so just a lot of a lot of time either in combat or in recovery in military hospitals or navy hospitals or air force hospitals
2: yeah i i'm always amazed by stories of uh our our troops who are wounded in combat yet uh, return to the fight. Uh, do I have this right that you've earned the Purple Heart three times?
3: Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I got wounded twice in the Vietnamese Airborne Division, and then again as a company commander in the 1st Cavalry Division.
2: Yeah, I, I the sacrifice is astounding, and I can't thank you enough for your service to the nation, which continues to this day, even even educating us as we speak on cable television as to what's going on Around the world, the West Point experience uh, is kind of singularly u- unique. But you you actually experienced it twice, and by that I mean much later in your career, you returned to West Point as a professor. Tell us what that was like.
3: Well, you know, I came out of the Walter Reed after extended stay, and the Army was good enough put me in graduate school for a couple years in political science at American University, and. Uh, we had a a pretty well-organized system to get captains teaching at West Point, various departments. So I went up to West Point and taught American government comparative politics, economics, and national security as a young guy for three years. You know, they always tell people, if you want to learn something, try teaching it. (laughs) And uh, to this day, I always tell people that I have an advantage over most Americans about understanding the economy that. Having taught the subject, I'm confident I don't understand how the economy works. And then later on, when I left the uh, uh, Clinton administration, after 32 years in the military, I got an offer to go back as the Bradley National Security Professor, civilian uh, chair funded by a foundation, and went up there and taught essentially for another 11 semesters, which was really a joy, 20, 25 kids, Called out of three or 400 uh, applicants. And uh, my dad used to be outraged. I me mean, because I told him I was gonna teach a bunch of 20 year olds at the same level as the National Defense University to Lieutenant colonels. And these young people were so ferociously intelligent and they, were, they could write, which is almost nobody in America can write a paragraph anymore. Uh, They were just beautiful kids. And so, you know, I'd, I'd warn my guest speakers, be prepared. Uh, These young people are, are more intelligent than you and I are, but they have no idea of what questions they shouldn't ask. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if you're an Air Force four-star general lecturing the class, they might ask you why we have so many planes. You know, I, I, they're just uninhibited and and so people Well, but it also
2: it also speaks to the right instructors, professors who who foster an environment where no question is off the table, right? And I think we're living in an environment and even as we speak there's discussion of how, you know, Putin's advisors and military is, are fearful of telling him the truth. You know, if your students can't ask questions, then you're failing as a professor. So it it says something about you as well that they felt free to ask, ask those questions. There's another time in your life, Barry, that we've discussed where, you know, you were the one asking the questions unfiltered. And that was when you returned to various combat theaters um, as someone who was asking hard questions in the form of consulting, advising, and guiding decision makers. And that fascinates me as well. Tell us about that experience.
3: Well, yeah, you know, by the way, my final uh, combat tour was actually as a division commander in Desert Storm. So I, uh, having spent five and a half years in Germany as a battalion executive officer and battalion commander in tank mechanized forces, fortunately, I end up as a division commander of the 24th Infantry Division as it deploys out the Desert Shield, Desert Storm, seven Army divisions, two U.S. Marine divisions. Syrian Egyptians, and uh, then the, uh, essentially the 30-day air war and the four-day blitzkrieg we pulled on the Iraqi army. So I, I had a you know variety of combat experiences, to include the Desert Storm campaign. Well, when I left, I was my last military job. I was a theater commander, joint commander for Latin America. Then into the Clinton administration for five years. Then when I came out teaching at West Point, and I added to that. I would uh, happily accept assignments from joint commanders like the CENTCOM commander or the uh, SACUR in Europe for NATO countries. And i take on assignments pro bono sponsored by these military commanders to go look at national security issues. And I'd come back and I'd write an unclassified report, put it online, try not and pull punches, and I'd also try and point out the unbelievably competent people I was running into, battalion commanders, brigade commanders, two-star generals. And I'd also be critical where I thought that was warranted. So I remember at one point, uh, Secretary Wimfeld called a, an unnamed Sencom commander and said, why in the heck are you allowing McCaffrey into Iraq and Afghanistan? And he said, sir, if we can't have an independent view Critical or supportive of what we're doing, we're lost. The military fosters that kind of an environment, particularly if you're the S3, G3, J3 operations officer. You know, when the general says something, you're supposed to speak up and say, Sir, I don't think you meant to have this come across this way, but X, Y, and Z. And you try and shape in a debate, a dialogue, sometimes sort of heated words to get the right outcome, Yeah, collective decision-making. And I was able to be part of that.
2: Yeah, it's invaluable. And, you know, for any leaders who are uh, even heads of families who are listening to this podcast, you've got to make every effort. It's really hard to build it into your daily life and the way you do business to ask for and contrary opinions to have a system in place where somebody can give you the ground truth and so many CEOs of corporations sit up on the top floor of their their corporate offices in the corner window office and just never get the ground truth from the rank and file i'm glad someone like you was doing that but you know as you alluded to you're not always the most popular person in the room when you're uh, developing the ground truth and delivering what could be uh, news that people don't want to hear about how things are going what are some examples of that in that experience where you you had to tell people this, you know, this isn't going right. Uh, you got to be aware of something that you may not, you may not understand right now.
3: Well, I, you know, I think the other thing is, I, my dad used to talk about this all the time. He'd say, you know, people are uh, by and large the senior leaders you run into in the military for sure, incredibly well-educated. You now I was a run of the mill four-star general and I had five and a half years of postgraduate education. So, the people you're dealing with, certainly in command, are really sharp, dedicated, honest people. But they get tired. They get hungry. They have a bad number stuck in their head from a briefing eight years ago. Uh, Sometimes they make boneheaded mistakes. But for sure, in almost every case, if there's a collective dialogue debate, if you start in a room with 10 people sitting around the table and say, here's the the objective, here's the problem we're trying to solve, and then start with the most junior person in the room and say, what do you think we ought to do? And then proceed around the room until it gets to you. A lot of times, the group has actually hammered out the best of all possible decisions by the time you open your own mouth. Indeed, Certainly, you're educated. And the downside, you got to see the downside. You know, Frank, uh, you and I have hung around Washington, D.C. off and on for years. I used to be a defender of lobbyists, of all things. And I tell people, a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., first of all, you actually can't buy congressmen contrary to public expectation, maybe occasionally you do, the FBI knows the ones you can, but, right, right, but normally right. you go in there and you say, I'm representing the electrical business or the banana growers of America, and here's what we want you to do, here's why we want you to do it, and here's the downside of you supporting our position. And if you go into a congressman's office and you don't, you sell him, you flimflam him on the operation, you'll never get back in there again. So I think that also happens in the executive agencies and to CEOs, that somebody that comes in with a burning ambition to have policy X adopted, you'd better tell the senior guy the downside of what's about to happen.
2: Indeed. Yeah, I used to, there was a time in my career in FBI management when I felt like I wasn't getting feedback and I, I was concerned people just didn't want to give it to me. And I would have supervisory meetings and, and appoint a devil's advocate. And I, yeah. I basically say, we're, I'm, we're not leaving the room until I hear a contrary opinion on what we're about to do from somebody. Yeah. And, and that, yeah. that, you know, people were still like, oh, really? You really? oh, know, really? Yeah. Let's take a time out to talk about safety and security. And today, safety and security has to include cybersecurity. In fact, I say there's two kinds of people when it comes to cybersecurity, those who have been hacked and those who have been hacked but just don't know it yet. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One by going to Avast.com com what i like most about avast is its data breach monitoring that enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed i also like the pc speed up it optimizes the background activity of your apps in order to speed up your pc avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month and with avast 1 You can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cybercrimes. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. We've got a fun new sponsor called June's Journey. If you like a good whodunit as much as I do, then you'll love June's Journey. You play the game as June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries full of twists and turns around every corner. We all need a good diversion from our stressful lives right now. And June's Journey is the perfect game for that. With thousands of vivid scenes and new chapters every week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. Since you're listening to The Bureau you know I spent my career solving mysteries. So, of course, I've been playing June's Journey to the point where it's hard to put down. It's casual gameplay that fits in whenever you need to escape. There's a detective, or FBI agent, in all of us. And your inner detective can be found by downloading June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Now back to the podcast. So um look the, the Barry McCaffrey at some point uh, obviously a longtime uh, military servant of the people finds himself in Cuba of all places tell tell us the story of what in the world you're doing in Cuba who you met and talked to and how you even got into the country <laughs>
3: Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of these uh, flashpoints around the globe, if you're in uniform and intelligence unit service or whatever, you've followed the issue for years. So I've obviously followed Cuba fairly closely. And I've been fascinated with uh, with Latin America anyway. My last military responsibility was the giant South Com commander was I was responsible for military support and operations throughout the Latin American region, Caribbean, Central America, that sort of thing. And then when I came out of the military, I was drug policy director. And again, for, you know, five years, Latin America, drug smuggling routes, uh, Colombia. Peru, you know, poor Ecuador, you name it, they were high on my list of places that I was trying to understand and influence. And by the way, I actually love dealing with Latin America, Mexico, the culture, the language of the people, their, their political elites are frequently better educated and better looking than our political elites. I kept saying we needed to have better contact with Cuba as a drug policy director, and so they kept reaching out to me, and, you know, I, I talked to General Powell at the time Secretary of State, and he said, yeah, go on down there. So I linked up with a group who were, had, to my mind, sort of an anti-American tone to them, and they were had an expedition going to meet Castro. So, you know, I went, and uh, I ended up having an eight or nine hours separate from the group with Castro and his senior people, his brother, the minister of defense, his translator, interpreter—it was fascinating. And poor old Castro—I'd been coached by several people in the intelligence community and in Congress, and you know they said, "Look, this guy's not used to dealing with other adults. He goes on eight-hour rants and lectures people, and they worship him and they—they they don't oppose his ideas." So. He blew up at me several times during this one on me versus the the gang session. Almost nobody else was allowed to say anything, by the way, except for Castro. And at one point he said, why are you interrupting me like this? And And why are you making these statements? I said, Mr. President, surely you want me as a friend of Cuba and the doors are closed to give you honest feedback on what we're talking about. I mean there was some chest
2: that's bizarre. called a that's called a rhetorical question when you're po- posing that to Castro, but you know these pesky Americans with their freedom of speech issues, and yeah, we're right we're right back to giving somebody ground truth when they're not used to All right. to hearing it. Well, this is a first for the podcast. I've never had a guest on that spent you know over seven or eight hours with Fidel Castro. But um, you mentioned you mentioned drug policy, and and I'd be remiss if we didn't get into the fact that you have served in President Clinton's administration, and I believe at the time, at least, this was a cabinet level position. Do I have this right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And,
2: and you yeah. were the you were the director of the Office of uh, National Drug Policy. How did that even come to be? How does the phone call come to you that says, hey, uh, General Caffrey, uh, we have something for you?
3: Well, you know, the armed forces, 2.1 million men and women globally deployed are actually all under the command of two civilians. The only ones who can give orders to the armed forces are the President of the United States and the Secretary of Defense, no one else. And so those two civilians, Dr. Bill Perry, this genius, this humble man, and President Clinton were the, so they knew all the nine of us as joint commanders. You have a phone, you can pick up the phone and call the guy. And uh, I had run into President Clinton several times. I had tremendous admiration for him incredibly hard worker, listens to people, reads the briefing book that's eight inches thick before you go in the Oval Office. So he, um, he wanted me to be a drug policy director. He was in political trouble. It was a year to the reelection campaign. There were several issues on why he wasn't gonna get reelected. One of them was a drug issue and they asked me to, and I said, no, I said, but I wrote him a several page letter and here's how to better organize this effort. And here are the names of three people that are superbly qualified to take on responsibility. <laughs> and to Secretary Perry, this lovely man, called me in and said, Barry, said, I wouldn't do this to my best friend, but I told the president, you ought to be the drug policy director. And the vice president called me in twice. The president saw me. I told him I really didn't want to do it. And my dad said shut up and do what the president asked you to do. And so that's how I ended up as a drug policy director. Yeah, yeah. It was was the most useful five years, five and a half years of my life.
2: Well, that's saying a lot, Barry, for someone who has had the life experience you've had. Why why do you say that? To me, having been on the law enforcement side of drugs uh, and drug enforcement, it's often viewed as just this... uh, Sisyphean task. You're rolling the stone up the mountain and back down the mountain, and and uh, you take a cartel leader out, and there's another one to replace them. Why do you say it was that rewarding an experience?
3: You know, that's actually a great way to set up that issue, because, because it is. It's not a victory to be won, a war to be waged. Uh, you know, there's 325 million of us. Most of us don't abuse alcohol or use drugs Uh, The country's actually in great shape. But, you know, even today, as we're recording this uh, useful discussion, last year, 101,000 people overdosed dead from uh, illegal drug abuse, and almost 99% died from alcohol abuse. So it's this central issue in American society that explains a lot, almost everything you don't like about life. Can be explained by drug and alcohol abuse, uh, and add in cigarettes, which kill 420,000 people a year, and you've got the, you've got the single greatest health threat to America. But it dominates criminal discussion, you know. So I, I what I did know a considerable amount about was how to get bills through Congress, how to deal with the media, how the Washington environment worked. And then I got out there and we able to support the people in prevention and education programs, meaning homeroom teachers, coaches, pediatricians, ministers, and then to get involved in the treatment community with these beautiful people who are involved. Unfortunately, you know, let's say there's 20 million of us have a drug and alcohol problem, maybe three and a half million of us have access to science-based drug treatment. So there was an area that I made a major effort in, along with research, National Institute of Drug Abuse. And then finally, there was a coordination ability to try and go out to the global community and say, stop saying Colombia or Mexico that our drug addicts are what's causing your problem. Let's view this as a common challenge that's devastating to our youth to our working community, to our law enforcement community. And so that's what we did. And we actually made a huge impact, had great cooperation out of Congress, both political parties, and certainly great support out of President Clinton and his cabinet.
2: Yeah, talk talk about the, the metrics for success there while you were uh, leading this. What, what tangible metrics uh, stand out to you that uh, made a difference?
3: Well, we measured everything, and you can measure the input function. We got tremendously increased resources from Congress, bipartisan support to fund research. Uh, We put together a multimedia approach to try and communicate, particularly with adolescents. Look, nobody's 30 years old, has your first baby, graduates from law school and says, I think I'll start using cocaine. That just isn't the way it works. So you get on eighth graders, are drug free. By the end of high school, half of them have tried an illegal drug and a quarter of them are past month drug users. So the centerpiece of any drug control strategy has to be how can we reduce or delay the exposure of adolescents to illegal drug use? And by that, I mean principally smoking cigarettes, binge drinking beer, and using pot. get a lot of that behavior, and you put yourself statistically in an enormously enhanced likelihood of ending up at age 30, unemployed, HIV positive, with significant mental health problems, living on the street, uh, turning tricks for your food that night. I mean, it's just The misery of drug addiction is palpable. And so that's what we said. That's what we got to do. The tough one I might add is drug treatment. We have science-based standards. We know how to get people detoxified and get them into sobriety. We know how to deal with relapse prevention, but it costs money and you have to organize institutions that have bright young people working in them. The best thing you can do is make sure your employees and your children don't end up chronically abusing drugs.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a devastating impact on families, individuals, uh, our economy, et cetera, as you said. And you almost can't intervene early enough. You almost can't get in front of kids too early. And yet, of course, we have states talking about uh, legalizing or decriminalizing hallucinogenics. Uh, It's... um, we're, we're, it's almost it's a fatalistic, terrible. yeah. It's almost kind of a we give up attitude, which um, I'm certainly. Well, not you be-
3: know, something sort of baked in our society that we encountered was uh, there's an old canard that says, "Look, uh, people have to reach rock bottom until they're on the street, disgraced by their own behavior. The stigma is incredible, uh, and then we can intervene." But that's not the case. So, you know, if it's if it's your uh, high school age daughter, if it's your mother abusing opioids, the time to intervene in a collective approach to dealing with the problem is now, not after they're uh, on their 10th felony arrest.
2: Agreed. Agreed. Let's move on to uh, a, a kind of a, a challenge of another kind that's being waged across the globe, and that's the battle for Ukraine. You're on covering this. I am to some extent, certainly not to the extent you are. I want to ask you about the media's coverage of the Ukraine-Russia conflict and uh, what they're getting right, uh, what they may not be getting right, and then and then let's let's segue that right into what's going on in Putin's head and where where you see this playing out.
3: Well, it's an enormous tragedy of just galactic import- importance, you know here's this giant country, giant population, 44 million people, uh, sovereign nation, sort of a fragile democracy, no question, corruption, political infighting, the obvious division between the Russian speakers and the Ukrainian speakers. And so, but it was making its way in the world and it was headed toward the European Union. It was headed toward NATO. It understood, baked into its DNA, was oppression by the Russians, the czars, Stalin starved to death, millions of them, you know, their national anthem. it starts with Ukraine has not yet perished. What an insight into a vulnerable suffering society. And then we get this, this war is explained by one factor, that's it, it's Putin. And it ain't NATO and it ain't biological warfare labs. There's a lot of utter nonsense that wasn't even explained by the internal divisions uh, inside Ukraine. Mr. Putin said, this is part of Russia. It must be integrated back into mother Russia. I'm going to seize the country by force. And this is the fourth time he has conducted criminal operations against another state. Involving mass murder of civilians to force capitulation, and he's gotten away with it. And I think most of us who were following the issue closely, I mean in and out of Kiev arms control negotiation over the years. And by the way, thank God we got the nuclear weapons out of all the satellite states of the Soviet Union, put them back in Mother Russia, we might have a nuclear war going on now. Mm-hmm. So poor Ukraine said, no, we're not going to do this. Their courage, their commitment, their leadership, some of their military leadership, some civilian who stuck on a camouflage uniform, organized his friends and territorial unit, went out to defend their own town. It's utterly magnificent. I hope with European support in particular, U.S. support, and global diplomatic and economic sanctions, I hope these people... Can keep their freedom. The decisions in the balance, if not decided either way.
2: You've got some serious NATO experience in your past with an increasingly cornered Putin, someone who feels like he's not getting the truth from his closest advisors, can't rely on anyone, increasingly desperate, perhaps what what would get nato involved or the us involved we've heard of course talk of the possible use of biochem weapons which certainly i would not put past him what would that response look like what do you think would would get the us or nato involved in a far bigger way than currently
3: a couple of observations the first the most historically accurate observation of the us and how we go to war are decisions that were completely unpredictable, both to our adversary and internally in our own political system. I mean, every time, go look at it. How do we end up in a civil war? You couldn't get through that decision process the same way in a hundred times. World War II, the strike on Pearl Harbor. Poor Mr. Hitler, the murderous thug, declares war on us. Korea, the Secretary of State, makes an inartful comment about Korea's outside our defense envelope, and the North Koreans with Chinese in, uh, support invade South Korea. Uh, Vietnam, you know, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. Uh, so one thing Putin ought to be aware of is that even though properly President Biden has said, I don't want uh, the U.S. involved in direct combat operations inside Ukraine, there is a possibility that that's where we go. Some of them, I, I have publicly argued, if he uses chemical weapons, and by the way, I, you know, I've dealt with chemical and biological and nuclear weapons my entire life. Uh, chemical weapons are a lousy military option. It doesn't work. If you fire chemicals in the U.S. Army, we've got protective gear, medical antidotes, early warning systems. We can fight in a chemical environment pretty darn well. Misery kills some of us, but we can deal with it. If you use them against civilians living in basements in Kiev or our Kiev or Odessa, you're going to kill thousands of people if he employs chemical weapons. And personally, I hope Secretary Blink and, and uh, Lloyd Austin have told the Russians this. I think we'll be in the war. And if we do, I hear a lot of nonsense on TV. Well, we, if he uses chemical weapons, we'll provide a safe zone near the frontier or a retreat corridor from the town so attacked. If he uses chemical weapons, U.S. air power needs to go after the Russian military in Ukraine, in Belarus, in the Sea of Azov, in the Black Sea, or in Russia, wherever we need to do to take out chemical delivery systems. He'd be in the war. He'd lose most of his military power in Ukraine in a 30-day campaign. Would it widen? Would it go to World War III? Would it escalate vertically into nuclear weapons? I doubt it. Uh, I don't know what would happen, but he's in no position to start World War III. For God's sakes, he got most of his ground combat forces and his air power trying to deal with the Ukraine. Is he going to use nuclear weapons? I doubt it. It's madness. You can't have a nuclear exchange and win. He, Putin knows that. Mm-hmm. But there may be other ways we'd get in the war. I think at some point, you know, Mariupol as an example. If he does that to Kiev, at some point, the Europeans, by the way, the, the three NATO nations that really count are the UK, France, and the US. The Germans have disarmed. They have almost zero military value. In a couple of three years, they'll have military value, but they're now, it reminded of what happened in 1945. But I, I think we're one step short of being pulled into that ground war, the better alternative is give them undivided attention and resource support in the coming 90 days.
2: Yeah, as we as we get we increasingly see attacks uh, in l'viv and and attacks getting closer and closer to the the Polish border. Uh, should we be concerned about an accident? Uh, some something being lobbed over the border into into Poland, and and what would that response look like? I, I when we're we're hearing word that they're not even picking up the phone these days uh, when Washington calls uh, Moscow. How do we de-escalate an accident that results in a, a strike uh, in Poland?
3: Well, you know it's a significant danger. There's no question about it. And I assume that there, there will be an accident if, if the if the Russians actually approach the uh, there's four NATO nations bordering on Ukraine. So, if the fighting continues right up to the border, there's going to be cross border incidents okay, involving air power, cruise missiles. There already has been one of them got fired up and landed in Poland. We you know nobody wanted to talk about it, but I think the bigger problem is what is uh, Mr. Putin know? What are his generals telling him? I listen to former uh, Russian minister of foreign affairs, Kostrov, who I've actually dealt with is a brilliant man. He's hiding in New York under, I'm sure FBI protection right now, just interviewed on MSNBC, a lovely, lovely person who grew up in the Stalin era. So, and I, when I was negotiating with the Russians, a lot of these guys trusted us far more than their own senior political leadership. And, uh, uh, he, Kosovo, I think it was, made the comment, he said, these generals, when they walk in the room, are more likely to kill him than tell him the truth. So he wasn't trying to accentuate to kill him. He was saying it's perilous to the extreme to go in there and tell him, hey, this we're in a mess. We lost operational control of a 250,000-man military operation uh, at battalion level were being outfought by Ukrainian uh, civilians armed with rapidly with assault rifles and U.S. smart munitions. I think it's worth being extremely concerned. There is zero chance that Putin's going to say, let's back out of there. Uh, We'll tell him all along we only wanted the Donbass, the land bridge, the Crimea. I think he knows he has to get Odessa. But even then, he's on record in public too many times saying, Mother Russia wants her property back. So I don't think you can back out of there. So what I sort of hope is these brave Ukrainians finally have the generals work up the courage to either remove him from office or go in there and tell them, sir, we quit. We can't do this. Wow.
2: Yeah, it's um, the, the, the notion of a face-saving scenario for Putin is very hard to en- envision at this point.
3: By the way, if I can yeah. comment on that, you know, I think part of the problem is a lot of discussion on, you know, how do we find an off-ramp and face-saving? Mm. I think it's vitally important conflict resolution. The end of a war is the most dangerous part of a war. We cannot tolerate Putin ending this war and saying, I won he must be humiliated. The sanctions must stay in place. He must be a pariah. And that's going to be tough for the U.S. and NATO to organize, but that's important. We can't say, okay, we're going to give you a third of Ukraine, we meaning the Europeans and the U.S. We've got to make sure that he ends up exposed for what he is, a criminal.
2: That, that may be the biggest takeaway I have from our discussion today, Barry, and I've got several, but I, I, I think you've just helped me to refine and reshape the way I, I speak about this because you're right. The traditional notions of uh, negotiation and compromise do not apply to a terrorist. And and through my law enforcement and intelligence lens, I I view Putin's actions as terrorism. He certainly meets the legal definition of trying to intimidate, coerce through force a civilian population for political means. He's not necessarily attacking the United States, but otherwise he is, in, in my mind, a terrorist. And giving a terrorist a, a face-saving solution is not the way to go. So thank you for that reminder. You've. I want to close with um, a discussion of uh, how Biden is doing in this realm. You've advised presidents before, You've been in combat before and led troops. You referenced the, the countries that count, really, in NATO. You also made reference to Germany. How, how's Biden doing, by your measure, in regards to Ukraine-Russia?
3: Well, as well as he could possibly do. You know, notwithstanding verbal gas in this kind of uh, discussion, he's an experienced, decent man. He's got a kind heart. He's got integrity. Fortunately, I think overwhelmingly, his cabinet officers tend to be technocrats with high IQs and lots of experience. Uh, I mean, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, CIA Director Burns, these are really knowledgeable, stable people. And their success in bringing NATO together has been simply phenomenal. Trump almost destroyed our alliances globally. and. Biden and his team have put them back together. So I think uh, he ought to feel proud of the, the collective team effort and mostly on the Ukraine issue on national security issues. There's a tendency for the Republicans to come aboard and try and support uh, sensible U.S. foreign and national security policies. So, I mean, thank God for all that.
2: Indeed. Indeed. We've seen a remarkable kind of unanimity amongst the NATO nations uh, and as We've talked about previously. Thirty countries um, getting their act together collectively is it's pretty astounding. On that positive note, uh, we're going to we're going to uh, thank you not only for the carving out this time with us today in what I know is an incredibly busy uh, schedule, uh, and for your body of work in serving the nation, Barry. We're we're grateful. We may come back to you as things develop, but uh, thanks for spending time with us.
3: Good to be with you, Frank.
2: Thanks for joining our discussion with General McCaffrey, a man who epitomizes service to the nation. You can learn more about Barry at his website, www.mccaffreyassociates.com. Next time, we'll have another fascinating guest as we go Beyond the Bureau with Frank Figlusi.
0: The Bureau is written by Frank Faglusi, and executive produced by Allison Gill, with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey, with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent, creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.